Genesis chapter 39, and I want to draw your attention to some new mission cards that were uh, dropped off to us by Sam Keeley. Uh, Sam is prayerfully anticipating going to the Philippines uh, with Word of Life to do short-term missionary work. And uh, he put those on the back table near the mission display board. Invite you to pick up one to remember him to pray for him. And uh, as I'm thinking of, of missionaries, um, uh, Bob McDonough is uh, not here this morning. He's, he is not a missionary. He's a chair of our mission committee. He is having surgery tomorrow on his hip. And so he would appreciate your prayer. He doesn't want to catch anything before surgery. Uh, so we can be praying for him uh, tomorrow as well. Uh, Genesis 39 is our text this morning, and let's pray before we consider it. This is a familiar text, perhaps a familiar story of Joseph and Potiphar's house, and the approach I take this morning may not be as what you expect. Some of the familiar applications may still be there, but I think it's important for us to see this text in the broader picture of what God intends to do in Christ and also for us. And I want us to be encouraged by what we read here this morning. But let's pray for the Lord's guidance. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you do impart to us the Holy Spirit that we might look into your word and see rich truth for us. And we ask, Father, that our hearts would be open to the teaching uh, from this word. Help me to be able to communicate well regarding this word and help us to see that ultimately you are faithful. No matter what the circumstances that you allow to come into our lives, you are ultimately faithful. And you don't intend anything that wouldn't occur uh, for our good in your glory. And I ask, Father, that we would be encouraged, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a stumbling block is something that people trip over. It's often used as a word picture to describe things that we, had we seen, we wouldn't have then fallen over it. And uh, I'm always reminded of stumbling blocks every time I take the compost bucket out to our wooded area where we obscure that stuff and we dump it. But along the pathway, there's these little stumbling blocks, little roots that uh, protrude and little rocks. And uh, they're called stumbling blocks that uh, if I see it, I can step over top of it. But if I don't see it, I'm going to stumble on it. And so this morning, I want to introduce in our thinking the major stumbling block of faith that if we were to see it, we wouldn't fall on it. In fact, we might even be helped because of it, uh, being able to see it. What am I talking about? I'm actually talking about what Paul in the New Testament describes as the, the stumbling block of faith. There is a dynamic in which God makes unconditional promises to us in Christ Jesus, but yet at the same time, He also makes conditional promises to us that we need to make, uh, we need to be obedient to do. And so, at times, it seems contradictory, and if we don't see it, we can stumble over it in our Christian life. God does not require of us what He promises to do Himself. That's an unconditional promise that He makes. But yet God asks us to do things. Now, it's not intended to be performance, but as a response to faith that God will keep His promises for us in Jesus Christ. Now, there are two kinds of agreements that we need to think about going into this text. I haven't even read it yet, so bear with me. But God makes two kinds of agreements with His people. He makes conditional agreements, and He makes unconditional agreements. What are the two, and what do they mean? Well, a conditional agreement is such that God sets terms and conditions, and then He promises His blessings if we choose to 
obey them. It's conditioned upon our responsiveness to what he has told us to do. An unconditional agreement is where God sets the terms and conditions and promises his blessing knowing that we will not be able to obey. Now, the distinction of these sometimes overlaps. And these two ideas, if we're not careful, can be a stumbling block to us. If you don't see it. And frankly, seeing the distinction between these two things is critically important because it makes a difference between saving faith and unbelief. It makes a difference between heaven and hell, really, in the grand scheme of what God is doing in Christ Jesus. And I think the simplest way to understand this concept is in our own life. We have agreements, don't we, that we make with other people? We make agreements that have to have binding terms to them because we live in a world in which agreements are taken awfully lightly. We have law practice because people don't keep up their end of agreements. And so, God himself made an unconditional agreement with Abraham stating that he was going to keep both sides of the agreement and bless Abraham regardless of what was going to come. That ultimately found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And this promise was fulfilled in Christ by taking the punishment because we couldn't keep up the agreement with God. Now, the New Testament in 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2, says this, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And knowing that we couldn't keep the demands of the law and the standard of absolute holiness... God in himself predetermined to take both sides of the agreement and bless all who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. He takes the punishments. And so the sinless Son of God stood in our place. Now the Old Testament uses a word to describe the loyalty that's required of somebody to keep the other side of an agreement. The Old Testament uses a word that occurs in this passage in, in Genesis 39 and is the hinge. The Old Testament uses the word steadfast love. And a person who has a steadfast love for another will not throw them under the bus if they have done wrong. What they will do is they will be faithful to them regardless of their inability to keep their end of the agreement. That's steadfast love. It's the language of covenant. It's the language of married covenant relationships. We don't just throw our spouses out the door if they don't live up to their end of the agreement. We have a steadfast, loyal love for that person in spite of the fact that they're sinners. Now, in the story of Joseph, we come upon this language of the unconditional uh, commitment. And it's found in verse 21. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go through the text section by section so we can see what God is doing here for Joseph and by implication what God does for us because of Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Steadfast love. God had predetermined to bless Joseph no matter what difficulty he was going to experience going into Egypt. That unfaithful, that faithful, steadfast disposition is here on display. God made a commitment to Abraham that he would bless his offspring with unconditional blessings. And in fact, this is that language, and it's a signal to us to help us to understand what God is doing here in spite of the circumstances we see unfolding in Joseph's life. 
Now, let's read this text, and I want us to take some time to think about discipline. And before we read the text, let's just think about discipline for a moment, because I think this truly is the the stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. So God makes promises to us that are unconditional, but then why does he punish us at times when we don't follow through with what the Word of God has told us to do? And I think that is a stumbling block because for some people, they don't want to commit themselves to Jesus Christ because they think that they have to perform in a way to live up to a statement of faith that they believe that Jesus will forgive them. Now, God asks Christians to pursue holiness, though, on the basis of knowing that God keeps His commitments to us in Christ. I want us to think for a minute to Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there or it'll be on the wall in front of you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Now, it seems counterintuitive that if God makes unconditional promises to us, then why would he discipline us if we do wrong? And I think we have to think in terms, as the Scripture does, as a family. A father is committed to his children, but yet wants his children to grow in obedience, and he has to discipline them when they do wrong. Now, our daughter has just recently been saying to us, when we've had to discipline her, things like, you don't love me. Now, when we hear that, boy, does that ever cut across the grain because that's not true at all. We do love her with an unconditional commitment as our daughter. But yet we do have expectations of obedience, and it's for her good. Um, We love her. We want her to experience the blessings that come from obedience. Now, one of the greatest blessings of obedience is the absence of pain. Now, I have shared this with some of my boys, and they've had to really think about this at times. That I tell them, look, you can have blessings if you obey, because then I don't have to give you pain. Now, they might say, well, Dad, you didn't give me a chocolate bar. What kind of reward is that? But the reality is we have a comfortability of relationship with our parents when we do obey, and that in itself is true reward. And how, God, how much greater is our Heavenly Father in which He delights to give to His children for their obedience, peace of relationship with Him. When we walk away from God, we experience the pain of broken relationship, just as the pain on the backside does for our children. And that's how it works. So we have to be careful that we don't make statements about God that we don't consider, you know, how we enact these for our own lives. But it's exactly the same. But what about those times when we've done right? What about those times when we've done right and then we've suffered for it? And we've actually suffered. Well, this is where we tend to stumble as well. But hopefully, we can understand that when we've done wrong, there's reason to suffer, but we also need to lear- learn to live, to realize that we live in a world of contingencies, of, of, of sin, and when people sin, it does affect us. There are things that are outside of our control that God does allow at times, and there's a whole host of problems that we have no control over. Now, that's a big setup, I know. But the reality is, The stumbling block is still the stumbling block of faith. You have to look at the fact that God has made an unconditional commitment to you in Jesus Christ and believe that by faith alone. And from there, take a look at the teachings of Scripture and and, and realize that there are conditions 
of obedience. Now, let's look at this text. I've had a long introduction. This will go much quicker, hopefully. And let's look at verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 39. Let's read. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him down brought him down from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And as you read that verse, you kind of see this downward progression. It doesn't look great. But in verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about any, any food that he ate, anything but the food that he ate. In this paragraph of coming to the awareness of where Joseph is, we see God making Joseph successful regardless of the circumstances that he found himself in. He was fruitful. Now, type A people find no greater satisfaction than seeing something that they have planned turn out just right. They love it when a plan comes together. It's like seeing a well-oiled machine and just stand back and you just, you just bask in seeing it come to pass. See, knowing that you know, you've been successful in something can actually cancel out a lot of, like, junk that you may have experienced, especially if you're a type A person. I mean, in fact, you can stand back maybe when you're now in your 40s or your 50s and look back and say, you know what, I've done things pretty well, and I'm not the screw-up kid that my parents thought I was. I mean, but I think it's probably true not only for type A people, but most of us enjoy seeing some measure of success. It's a sense of validation. In fact, success here is an important key word in what Moses, as he's writing this, is trying to communicate. That, that there was a hand of God in the background making sure that Joseph knew that he was secure in his father's love. Notice these words as they come up. In verse 2, he says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Continuing into verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 23, the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Now, it's a little bit outside of the storyline this morning, but it's in the whole tenor. And the word success there literally means to break forth like a field of spring flowers. In fact, the word success, as used as coming to fruition of, of fruitfulness, is only used in this chapter and in one other chapter in the book of Genesis. So it's very significant what Moses is saying. The other chapter that this word comes up in is in chapter 24. And in chapter 24, it was the servant of Abraham who was seeking a bride for his master's son Isaac. And in the pursuit of trying to find a suitable spouse, the Lord prospered him along the way. It was like the wind was in the sails and was taking him right to Rebekah. And it's the same concept that's being described here that the Lord was with Joseph and there's a breath of of life being blown into his life. Now, 
I digress just a little bit, but the idea of fruitfulness here is actually linked in very much so to the Holy Spirit. When you look back at creation, it is the Father who thinks of the idea of the world that he is going to create. The command to create is the Son of God, the Word of God, orchestrating and declaring, but it is the Holy Spirit who brings it to fruition. Theologians have looked at this and considered and recognized that this is an indication here that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating and working in the background here in Joseph's life to ensure that he is going to be successful in a very difficult place. You see, as a slave, he was a widget. He was a piece of meat. He didn't matter in that world and in that dynamic. In fact, there was no guarantee when he came down into Egypt where he would be and where he would go. But uniquely, God placed him not in the field working underneath of the taskmaster's whip. Instead, he was elevated into a place of prominence in the house of, of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. A very prestigious place, very much so as if one of you were to be working underneath of one of the generals in Washington, D.C. A place of prestige, maybe secret service uh, to the president. That would be like your place of honor, prestige. And so God placed him there and prospered Joseph there as well. In fact, in verse 6, Joseph was given the oversight of everything. And I think it's important for us to pause here just for a moment to realize that while our tendency is to look at material prosperity as an indicator of God's blessing, it may be or it may not be. And in this case, it's intended to be an indication that he is being, uh, he is being blessed. Now, I think it's important for us to realize as well that the most important thing to be known for is not the numbers or the, the value that is in your stock portfolio. What's most important is to be known by others as a man or a woman of God. You could gain the whole world and lose your soul, and then what would it profit? Material goods are momentary, but character and integrity last forever. 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise of the present life and also for the life to come. Where does godliness come from? Godliness comes from an awareness that all of life is lived before God. Where does that awareness come from? It comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that the gospel is not just a story, it's a true story though, but it makes dramatic impact in your life and makes claims upon your life. I mean, we all love the story of the gospel because it, it provides grace. But do we love the intended result that the gospel brings to us? Is that we live a holy life before God? Again, there's that unconditional stumbling block and the conditional implications that God asks us now as believers to walk after his son, Christ Jesus. Those are the stumbling block that we must evaluate. If we can see it, we can step over it. But we might, be, we might fall flat out if we don't. So it's really important for us to see here that in in. Joseph's life, there was a commitment to him of steadfast love. Steadfast love so that he would be fruitful regardless of his circumstances. And that fruitfulness is indicated that, you know, not just in the material prosperity, but also in his personal integrity and character. He not only was successful in business, but he was successful in his walk with God. And you see that in the next paragraph. 
In verse 6, the last half of the verse through verse 10, we see that God's steadfast love brings perseverance in spite of temptation. Let's read this next section. It picks up halfway through verse 6, the next paragraph. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. As I said before, monetary goods are momentary. But character and integrity are forever. See, the flower of success of the world that we live in is going to fade, but that inner quality of integrity will never fade because it's empowered by the Holy Spirit who is eternal. Notice at the end of verse 6 that Joseph had inherited a handsome form and appearance. Do you know where he got that from? He didn't get it from his father, Jacob. He actually got this from his mother, Rachel. In fact, this is the exact description of Rachel in comparison to Leah's weak eyes. In fact, Rachel is described as being beautiful, this is the quote, beautiful in form and appearance. And so he inherited some advantages, but those advantages were also a liability. And so that after a while, his master's wife says, cast her eyes on Joseph. Now, that's a really good translation. It's, it's the same translation in the King James as well as the English Standard Version. And it literally means to direct her eyes with desire towards him. There was something that triggered inside of her heart that caused her to lust after him. Now, Joseph, if you think about this, he was a slave, but the mistress of the house was enslaved to a lust for him. And I need to pause here for a moment to make some practical application, because I think it's important for us to realize in this moment that we, we realize that the male brain tends to be attracted visually but we shouldn't overlook the statistic that one-third of people who go looking for pornographic images are actually female. In other words, this is not just a male temptation. Practically speaking, this is a temptation that potentially affects all people. So what can we do to protect ourselves? Well, there are obvious ways that we can protect ourselves in this advanced day in which we have technology at our fingertips. We can, we can get internet filters. We can go to family-friendly beaches. But sometimes I think we ignore the most basic help that we could possibly have, and it's closer than we even think. Particularly, we have each other. Particularly, if you are married... You have a spouse who can be a help to you. I'd like to encourage all married couples here to occasionally have a conversation with our spouses. As weird as it may feel at first, there is safety in conversation with your spouse regarding some of these issues. Everyone has marital frustrations, but the temptation is to actually hide them and not talk about them. As I said, everyone has marital frustrations, and they don't have to be related to the topic at hand. They could be of any sort of a nature. Jack Benny uh, once said, 
that uh, he and his wife Mary had been married for 47 years, and at no time did they ever have an argument that was serious enough to consider divorce. Murder, yes. Divorce, never. But the reality is, we neglect the thing that's right in front of us. We have a spouse with whom we are married that we can engage and talk with about our fears, our stresses, our concerns. And if we can't, then we need to seek counsel from others. And you stop and think about this. What would have happened if Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar had actually sat down and talked about their issues? What would have Joseph been spared from? I mean, you might be not in a marriage situation. You might be single and you might be lonely. But this is an area in which other women can talk to women and other men can talk with other men with whom we have respect for and love and compassion for. Accountability is a good thing. In fact, fathers can talk to sons and mothers can talk to daughters. We have that opportunity right in front of us. And accountability is a good thing. Now, Joseph was the one who was being pursued here, and he was a little bit trapped, given the nature of his slave status. But he understood his relationship with God as being more important than the sin that was going to only last for a short season. And so in verse 8, it says he refused. And he kept refusing. And he clearly saw his responsibility to God as his supreme master. You know, it took a lot of integrity for, for Joseph to do this because in a slave status world in that day, in Egypt, it was nearly expected that he would comply with his mistress's wishes. And so she tries to wear him down. Samson got worn down, but Joseph did not get worn down. And so when he was cornered in the house, what did he do? In verse 12, he ran out. I'm reminded of a Scottish preacher who put the extra R into this, I run out. When I heard him preach that sermon, he emphasized just how important it is to get away from temptation when it's right around you. We would take heed to follow his example. But you know what? God is faithful, and whenever we are in temptation, he gives his children the capacity to resist temptation. I'm going to turn to the New Testament here for a moment and note and keeping note of my time. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 12 to 13 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No, temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the way of escape is incidentally right there in those verses. Do you see it? Particularly the first verse. Escape begins with the humility to recognize that you're not able to stand on your own. If you can recognize that the gospel tells you that you are a sinner... You in humility can recognize that you can't endure this temptation. You must call out to God for help. And boy, in those moments, God will give you his Holy Spirit to say no to sin and yes to God. And so the steadfast love of God, I believe, brings a perseverance in spite of the temptation. And know, and know for a fact that there will be times where we fall, but God will deliver and bring you back. Let's go back to Genesis 39 and look at the last section here in which God's steadfast love brings protection in spite of injustice. Verse 11 to 21. In verse 11 we read, But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. 
And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, This Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But, at the soon, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now there is steadfast love on display here. Protection in spite of the injustice. But there are a couple of ironies that I want to point out here this morning to help the impact of what's going on to settle in. Joseph runs from the house and he leaves his garment in her hand. Notice that it's a robe here again being used for deceptive purposes. Remember that it was the coat of many colors that had been dripped in blood and then brought to the father and the assumptive that now Joseph is dead. Think about what's going on here. Potiphar's wife screams to the other servants and she's holding the cloak in her hand and deceiving everyone against Joseph. Again. She paints a severe story. How is this going to end? This doesn't look good. I'm sure Joseph is having flashbacks realizing that his coat is gone again. There's a second irony here as well. In the early stages of the story, the, Moses is kind of pointing out that everything in Potiphar's hands was in the hand of Joseph. Now, Joseph's life was in the hand of Potiphar's wife. What a reversal of circumstances. It's all in her hand now. And she's telling a story that's warranting death. Something must not have set right in Potiphar's ears because in verse 19, we read that Potiphar is burning mad, but we don't know if Potiphar is actually angry at his wife or Joseph. The object of his anger is not clear exactly. But we do know that Joseph's status as a slave put him in a very vulnerable place that if the accusation of, of rape stuck it would have been more likely for him to end up at the gallows than to end up in the prison house. So in reality, Joseph got off pretty luckily to land in prison. In other words, there's a possibility that Joseph does not necessarily altogether agree, but to save face, he has to do what his wife would like him to do, which is to remove him from the household. But any way you cut this, the irony is, is biting for Joseph. And Joseph knows he's the victim of injustice. But this does not mean that God is blind to the truth. God knows the truth. He always knows the truth. As I've been praying through the Psalms each day, I have noticed so many Psalms that speak of the injustices of life that we all at some level have felt at one time or another. Just for example, Psalm 9, 3 through 4 says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Psalm 7, 8, verse 10 to 11 says, The Lord judges the people's 
Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 5, 4 and 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Psalm 4. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So, whenever we might experience a sense of injustice, we need to know that God has not abandoned us. We don't need to trip over the stumbling block. God's unconditional commitment to us is there because it's unconditional. And I think that the story of Joseph can be a blessing to us. Psalm 46, 1 to 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And you know what? There can be no greater time of trouble when you feel that you have been betrayed. Your world can weeble, it can wobble, it can reel to and fro, and you can sink beneath the waves of the the overwhelming circumstances that you're experiencing. But you need to know that God's steadfast love is for you. And if God's steadfast love is for you, then who can be against you? The unconditional agreement that God makes on your behalf is not meant to make you stumble. It's not meant to make you stumble into loose living where you just live a licentious life and saying, well, it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven anyway. Nor is it meant to make you uptight and anxious. Rather, it's kind of intended to be like sandbags that you put in the back of your pickup truck for the rough road. It gives you stability in the wintertime. You put your winter tires on, but that's not good enough. You've got to put that extra weight in there for traction. And that's what the unconditional love of God is intended to do for you. It guarantees in the end that God's good will be for you, just as it was for Joseph. As I was working through this text this week, I was reminded... And really, of the hymn, The Solid Rock. There is a line in that hymn that says, When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. That is stabilizing because it's anchored on the unconditional commitment of God for us. And so this morning as we close... In just a moment, we're going to sing that song as a reminder of God's faithfulness to us in spite of our sinfulness and because of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time this morning to meditate on the life of Joseph. He is certainly here for our example, but also for our encouragement. An example of a person who trusted in you, so he ordered his life according to how you would want him to live. But when life did not go as he thought it would, he still was trusting in you and your commitment to him. And I pray, dear Father, that we also would order our lives in the same manner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you could stand as we sing this together. built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of 
other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Rest in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Maybe seated as we have a few announcements and our first one is going to come from Adam Banks. So yesterday our youth group had the chance to go to Calkins and participate in their volleyball tournament. Uh, the winner of the tournament was First Baptist Church of Port Crane, and they also won second place for the Sportsmanship Award. Our team got sixth place out of sixth, but we did win the Sportsmanship Award for first place. So that's all I've got for today. Just a, a few words to, to recap yesterday, and uh, it's a true blessing uh, to have an opportunity to work with our youth, and I, I speak with Pastor Nabby and Bob and Lorna. I hope I can speak on your behalf as well, but uh, it's encouragement to us and uh, to see them work together, but not to do it for self-gratification, but to glorify Lord in what they do and their actions, how they conduct themselves, and uh, it's a real blessing. And I just want to ask you to continue in prayer for our youth as they continue to grow and mature physically, but not only that, but spiritually uh, in their hearts and their minds. And uh, those that participated yesterday, if you're here, could you just stand for a moment so that I uh, just, okay, there's, okay, they're not all here, but uh, thank you for the opportunity and uh, what a blessing it was and to... Uh, be encouraged by that because, uh, you know, winning isn't everything, but showing the true heart of God and allowing that to emanate from us, that's the real goal and that's the real prize is putting Christ first in our lives. Thank you. I have a card here from Audrey and Sarah, and as uh, Bruce mentioned, there's a note in here that says, we will be visiting supporting churches for CEF ministry throughout the month of November into early December. Please continue to pray for us as we travel many miles each week. So I'll post this on the bulletin board. You can read it in its entirety. Um, also, I'd like to point out we have a box of these wooden crosses out in the foyer. Um, these are from a gentleman who lives in Kingsley. And uh, he makes these and gives them out for free. And so if you would like one for your yard, um, feel free to take one of those. We'd love to have you have one. Also, Audrey and Sarah asked me to announce a Steve Green concert celebrating the 80th anniversary of Child Evangelism Fellowship. And that's um, Friday, November 16th at 6.30. And so they would like to invite you out to that event. Where? Um, no, it's at the um, Evangelical Free Church of Hershey. 
Yep, in Hummelstown. So it's, a, it's, not, it's not as close. Yeah, sorry. Um, we'd also like to, uh, again, acknowledge Veterans Day and thank all of the men and women who've served. Um, also, don't forget uh, to fill out the sermon notes, all the students for Pastor's Challenge. And I think I have a couple more. Maybe? Yes. Okay, the Thanksgiving uh, Eve service is not on Thanksgiving Eve, but it's uh, next Sunday night, and we'd love to have you out for that. And in that vein, um, we're also having a Christmas party coming up on the 9th, and so mark that on your calendar. I think that'll be a really fun time. Um, Also, we are looking for some more help for the nursery staff, and if that's something that you are uh, interested in or um, would like to get involved in or find more about it, um, please Um, I don't think Marilyn's here today, but go to the Welcome Center, and we'd love to talk to you about that. We have some other slots uh, that need filled, some other ministry opportunities, and if you're interested in finding out how you can help, um, Lorna has information at the Welcome Desk for you as well. Also, we're going to have choir practice right after the Sunday school service this morning. It'll be very brief, um, so we can get to lunch. I'm hungry already. So um, very short, we can uh, practice that, and that'll be for the Thanksgiving service, which is almost here. Also, don't forget that Mom to Mom is tomorrow, so if you are able to be involved in that, we'd really encourage you to come out at 9 a.m. for that. And at this point, we'd love to invite you all to Sunday school as we learn more about Abraham and Isaac. So um, do you have another announcement? Okay, all right, then you were dismissed. (laughs) 